You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hi, Nick. I have big news. Big news. Tell me your big news. I got a cat. Last night at 8 p.m., I got a cat. Did it come via Amazon Prime drone? No. That was a very specific time. Like 8 p.m. last night is not usually the time I would associate with people getting cats. Tell me how you got your cat. It was a lot more conventional. So I had an appointment at the shelter and found a picture of this cat with really nubby legs and immediately (laughs) fell in love, obviously. and. They actually responded to us, and we went, saw the cat, got the cat. The cat is now ours. That's awesome. Is the cat's name Nubby? It's not, but it is on the list of potential name changes. So right now, the cat's name is Tipper. We're definitely nervous about why the cat was named Tipper. <laughs> We're hiding all of the glass things for right now. How do we get to see the cat? Is there? Will there be Instagram? Will there be Twitter photos? This is the most important question. Wow, I haven't planned that yet. You think about that, and I'll uh, I'll start announcing the uh, first guest on this episode. <laughs> on today's episode, we speak with Irfan Mirza, who is wrapping up our coverage of the Microsoft Digital Defense Report with a conversation about enterprise resiliency. Now, this is really all of the chapters that are in the MDDR, the nation-state actors, the increase in cybercrime, sophistication, business email compromise that you've heard us talk about on the podcast, all gets sort of wrapped up in a nice little bow in this conversation where we talk about, all right, what does it mean? What does it mean for customers? What does it mean for enterprises? What does it mean for security teams? And so we talk about enterprise resiliency. And we actually recorded this interview in late 2020, But here we are, you know, two months later, and those findings are just as relevant, just as important. It's a great conversation. And after that, we speak with... Andrew Pavard. So he is a senior researcher on the Microsoft Security Response Center team. And his work is, well, he does a ton of things. I honestly don't know how he has time to pull all of this off. So he does everything from safe systems programming to leveraging AI to help with processes within MSRC, the Microsoft Security Response Center. And I just recall one of the quotes that he said from our conversation was, hackers don't respect your assumptions or something to that effect. But it's such a succinct way of describing how hackers approach our systems and technologies. So another really great conversation with a a super intelligent researcher here at Microsoft. On with the pod? On with the pod. Today we're joined by Irfan. Director of Enterprise Continuity and Resilience, and we'll be discussing the Microsoft Digital Defense Report and more specifically, Enterprise Resilience. So thank you for being on the show today, Irfan. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I hope we have a, a great discussion about this. This is such an important topic now. 
Yes, absolutely. And we have been incrementally working through the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. Both Nick and I have read it and have had some fantastic conversations with experts. So really looking forward to hearing about the summation around resilience and how that theme is pulled together throughout the report. So let's start it off by just hearing a little bit more about yourself. So can you tell us about your day-to-day? What is your role at Microsoft? Well, I lead the Enterprise Continuity and Resilience team, and we kind of provide governance overall at the enterprise. We orchestrate sort of all of the the risk mitigations. We go and uncover what the gaps are in our enterprise resilience story. We try to measure the effectiveness of what we're doing. We focus on preparedness, meaning that the company's ready and you know our critical processes and services are always on the ready. It's a broad space because it spans a very, very large global enterprise. And it's a very deep space because we have to be experts in so many areas. So it's a fun space by saying that. Great. And it's really appropriate today. Then we're talking about the MDDR and enterprise resilience. So let's start at a high level. So can you talk a little bit about just how security has changed as a product of the pandemic? Why is resilience so important now? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of customers are asking that. Our field is asking that question. People within the company are asking, look, we've been 11 months under this pandemic, maybe, you know, in some places like China, they've been going through it for a little bit longer than us, you know, a couple of months more. What we're finding after having sort of tried to stay resilient through this pandemic, uh, one obviously is on the human side. Everyone's doing as much as we possibly can there. But the other part of it is on the enterprise side, what is it that we're having to think about? as we think of security and as we think of enterprise resilience. There are a couple of big things that I think I would note. One is that, look, when this pandemic hit us, our workforce lifted and shifted. I mean, by that, I mean that we, we, we got up out, out of our offices and we all left. I mean, we took our laptops and whatever we could home and we started working remotely. It was a massive, massive lift and shift of personnel. Right. We got dispersed. Everybody went to their own homes. And most of us have not been back to the office. And it's not just at Microsoft. Even, even a lot of our customers and our partners have not gone back to the office at all. Right. So that, that's a, a prolonged snow day, if you want to call it that. The other thing that happened is our workload went with us. It wasn't just that, hey, you know, I'm taking a few days off, I'm going away or going on vacation, and and I'll be checking email periodically. No, it actually took our work with us, and we started doing it remotely. So what that's done is it's created sort of a, a need to go back and look at what we thought was our corporate security boundary, our perimeter. You know, in the classical model, we used to think of the corporation and its facilities as the, the area that we had to go and secure. But now in this dispersed workforce model, we have to think about my kitchen as part of that corporate perimeter. And all of a sudden, we have to ensure that, that my kitchen is as secure as the corporate network or as the facilities or the office that I was working from. That paradigm is completely different than anything we'd thought about before. And so, Ifan, in, in the MDDR, this section, um, and if you've got the report open, you're playing along at home, I believe it's page 71, this enterprise resiliency is sort of a, a wrap-up of a, of a lot of the observations that are in the MDDR report. It's not a new section. It's as you're getting towards the end of the report, you're looking for, okay, now what does this mean to me? Uh, I'm a CISO. I need to make new you know, security policies, security decisions for my organization. This concept of enterprise resiliency is sort of a wrap-up of everything that we've seen across cybercrime, across the nation state, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, is that accurate? Is that a good way to sort of read that section in the report? 
Yeah, it is really the the way to think of it, right? It's sort of like a the conclusion, so what, or or why is this relevant to me, and what can I do about it? When you think about the report and the way that it's structured, look, we you know the report goes into great detail about cybercrime, as you called out, Nick, and then it talks about nation state threats. These are newer things to us. We've certainly seen them on the rise actors that are well-trained, they're well-funded, they play a long game, not necessarily a short game. They're looking, they're watching, and they're waiting. They're waiting for us to make mistakes or to have gaps. They look for changes in tactics, either ours. Uh, They themselves are quite agile, right? So when you think about the environment in which we have to think about resilience and we have to think about security, that environment itself has got new vectors or new threats that that are impacting it. Right. In addition to that, our workforce is now dispersed. Right. We're all over the all over the globe. We see emerging threats that are that are non-classical, like ransomware. We see attacks on supply chain. We continue to see malware and malware growing. Right. And and so when you think about that, you have to think if I need to secure now my my dispersed corporate assets and resources, my people, the workload, the data the services and the processes that are all there, what are the the sort of three big things I would need to think about? And so this report sort of encapsulates all all of that. It gives the details of what's happening. And and then page 71, as you say, the resilience piece sort of comes back and says, look, your security boundary is extended. Like it or not, it is extended at this point. You've got to think beyond that on-site perimeter that we were thinking about before. So we have to start thinking differently. And th- these three critical areas that are sort of called out, acknowledging the security boundary has increased, thinking about resilience and performance, and then validating the resilience of our human infrastructure. This is like new ideas, but these are all becoming imperatives for us. We're having to do this now, whether we like it or not. And so this report sort of gives our customers, and, and it's a reflection of what we're doing in the company. It's an open and honest conversation about how we propose to tackle these challenges that we're facing. And so, Ifan, if we can move on to that critical area number two, that prioritizing resilient performance. When I say the word performance and resilient performance, is that scoped down just to sort of IT infrastructure or does that all go all the way through to the humans, the actual people in the organization and um, how they are performing their own tasks, their own jobs and the tasks that are part of their their job and, and et cetera, et cetera. What's the, I guess what's the scope of that area too? As we were thinking about resilience as, you know, shortly after we dispersed the workforce, we started thinking about, about what should be included in our classical understanding of resilience. But when you think about about typical IT services and online services and so on, a lot of that work is already being done with the life site reviews that we do. And people are paying very close attention to service performance. We have SLAs, we have obligations, we have commitments that we've made that our services will be performant to a certain degree. But there are also business processes that are associated with these services very closely. When you think about all of the processes that are involved and services that are involved from the time a customer thinks of buying Office 365 as an example, to the time that they provision their first mailbox or they receive their first email, there are dozens of process, business processes. Every single service in that chain could be working to 100% efficiency. 
And yet, if the business processes aren't there, for instance, to process the deal, to process the contract, to process uh, the customer's payment or uh, acknowledge receipt of the payment uh, in order to be able to provision the service, all of these processes all of a sudden, have to, we have to make sure that they're also performant. Right? So when we start thinking about resilience, up to now, business continuity has focused on, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are your dependencies mapped? Have you, have you done a business impact analysis? Are you validating and testing? your preparedness? You know, are you calling down your call tree, for instance? But I think where we're going now with true enterprise resilience, especially in this sort of modern day, we're, we're looking at performance, right? What, what is your preparedness resulting in? So if you stop and you think about a child at school, they get homework. Well, the homework really, they, they bring it home, they do it, they take it back to the teacher, they get graded on it. That's wonderful. This means that the child is ready. But at some point in time, the class or the teacher is going to give them a test and that test is going to be the measure of performance, right? So we need to start thinking of resilience and continuity in the same way. We're prepared. We've done all our homework. Now let's go and see how many outages did you have? How critical were the outages? How long did they last? How many of them were repeat outages? How many of the repeat outages were for services that are supposed to have zero downtime, like services that are always supposed to be on? like your DNS service or your identity authentication service, right? So when you start thinking about resilience from that perspective, now you've got a new set of data that you have to go and capture or data that you're capturing. You have to now have insights from it. You've got to be able to correlate your preparedness, meaning the homework that you've done with your actual performance, your outage and your, and your gap information. Right? So that, that's what prioritizing resilient performance is all about. It's about taking real-time enterprise preparedness and mapping it to real-time enterprise performance. That tells you if your preparedness is good enough or not, or what it is that you need to do. There's a loop here, a feedback loop that has to be closed. You can't just say that, well, you know, we've done all the exercises theoretically, we're good, and we're ready to take on any sort of a crisis or, or, or disaster. Yeah, that's fine. Can we compare it to real time what you're doing? Can we break glass and see what that looks like? Can we shut you down or shut down parts of your operation as in the event of an earthquake, for instance, or a hurricane wiping out uh, access to a data center? Right? Can we do those things and still be resilient when that happens? So this is what performance and resilience come together in that space. So am I right in understanding that beyond, like you said, the theoretical, where you think about the policies that you should have in place and the frameworks that you should have in place, you have the analytics on, you know, the state of the state of how performant your systems are to date. And then in addition, is there now the need for some sort of stress testing, like actually figuring out whether an additional load on a system would cause it to break to not be resilient? Is that now part of the new approach to resilience? Yeah, there are there are several several things to do here, right? That you absolutely said it. There's a stress test. Actually, this pandemic has is already a stress test in and of itself. Right. It's stressing us in many ways. It's stressing obviously the psyche and and you know our whole psychology and our ability to sustain in quarantine and isolated and insulated environments and so on. But it's also testing our ability to do the things that we just so uh, so much took for granted, like the ability to patch a server that's sitting under my desk in the office whenever I needed to. 
right? That server now has to become a managed item that somebody can manage remotely, patch remotely, update remotely when needed, control administrative access and privileges remotely. But yes, for resilience, I think we need to now collect all of the data that we have been collecting or looking at and saying, can we start to create those correlations between our preparedness and between our real performance? But there's another area that this dovetails into, which is that of human resilience. Right? We talked a little bit earlier about, you know, sort of the whole world enduring this hardship. We need to first and foremost look at our suppliers, subcontractors, people that we're critically dependent on. What does their resilience look like? That's another aspect we have to go back in the areas where we have large human resources or or workforces that are working on our behalf. We need to make sure that they're staying resilient. We talked a lot about work-life balance before. Now, I think the new buzzword in HR conference rooms is going to be work-life integration. It's completely integrated. And so we need to start thinking about the impact that that would have. Are we tracking attrition? of our employees, of certain demographics within the employees? Are we looking at disengagement? People just sort of, yeah, I'm working from home, but not really being fully engaged, right? The hallway conversations we used to have are no longer there. And we need to start thinking, are people divesting our resources? Are they divesting in the workplace? Are they divesting in their, in their work or work-life commitment? These measures are all now having to be sort of like, we used to rely on intuition, a look, a hallway gaze, look at the the snap in somebody's walk as they walked away from you or out of your office. We don't have that anymore. Everybody's relatively stagnant. We're, we're, we're seated. We don't get to see body language that much. We don't get to read that. There's a whole new set of dynamics that are coming into play. And I think smart corporations and smart companies will start looking at this as a very important area to pay attention to. How are we measuring that? What tools or sort of techniques or, or sort of frameworks exist to actually put a metric around this stuff and determine sort of where, where an organization is in terms of their level of resiliency? This question is actually the whole reason why we brought this enterprise resilience sort of as a conclusion to this fourth chapter and, and you know, the summation of this, of this report. What we're doing now is we're saying, look, things that used to be fundamentally within the domain of IT departments or used to be fundamentally within the domain of life site or used to be fundamentally in the domain of human resource departments are now all floating up to be corporate imperatives, to be enterprise imperatives. I think the thinking here is that we need to make sure that the data that we've been collecting about, as an example, to answer your question, attrition, right? A certain demographic, millennials uh, changing jobs, leaving the company, just to pick an example more than anything else. This is no longer just data that the HR department is interested in or that recruiting would be interested in or, or retention would be interested. This is data that's about to significantly impact the enterprise and it needs to be brought into the enterprise purview. Our classical and traditional models of looking at things in silos don't allow us to do that. What we're recommending is that we need to have a broader perspective and try to derive insights from this that do tell a more comprehensive story about our enterprise resilience. That story needs to include the resilience of our services, our business processes, our suppliers, our human capital, our infrastructure, our extended security boundary, our data protection, uh, prevention of data loss, our intrusion detection. I mean, there's such a broad area that we have to cover that's what we're saying. And, and as we implement this new sort of zero trust model, I think the, the effectiveness of that model, how much progress we're making 
is becoming an enterprise priority, not just something that the IT department is going to go run on its own. If and I wonder if I can put you on the spot and were there any interesting bits of data that you saw in those first couple of months of the shift to remote work where like, yeah, the number of unique devices on the Microsoft corporate network quadrupled in 48 hours, like anything like that? I'm just wondering what, what little stats you may have at hand. Yeah, the number of devices and sort of the flavors of devices, we've always anticipated that that's going to be varied. We're cognizant of that. Look, we have, you know, people have PCs, they have Macs, they have Linux machines, and and they have server operating software. There's a lot of different flavors. And, and it's not just the device and the OS that matters. It's also what applications you're running. Some applications we can certify or trust and others perhaps we can't or that we still haven't gotten around to to verifying, right? And all of these sit and they all perform various functions, including intruding and potentially exfiltrating data and spyware and malware and all of that. So when you think about that, we've always anticipated it. But the one thing that that we were extremely worried about, and I think a lot of our enterprise customers are worried about, is the performance of the workforce. What we found very early on in, in the in the lift and shift phase was that we needed to have a way of measuring is our our build processes working? Are we checking in the same amount of code as we were before? And we noted a couple of interesting things. We looked at our, our VPN usage and said, what do those numbers look like? Are they going up and down? And I think what we found is that initially, the effect was quite comparable to what we had uh, when we experienced snow days in, in Redmond. Schools are shut down. People don't go to work. They're slipping and sliding everywhere. We're just not prepared for snow weather in, in this state like some of the others. So what happened is we saw that we were, we were sort of seeing the same level of productivity as snow days. We saw that we had the same level of VPN usage as snow days. And we were worried because that, you know, when, when it snows, people usually take the day off and then they go skiing. So what happened? Well, after about a week, things started picking back up. People got tired of sort of playing snow day and decided that, you know what, it's time to to dig in. And human nature, I think, kicked in. The integrity of the workforce kicked in. And sure enough, productivity went up. VPN usage went up, our number of sessions, the duration of sessions. Meetings became shorter. Can I say hallelujah? <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the great upsides, isn't it, to this this new culture of remote work is that we're all meeting for, for less amount of times, which I think I think is fantastic. Look, you know, in times of crisis, whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic or, or a man-made situation such as a war or civil war or whatever, I, I think what happens is the amount of resources that you are customarily used to having access to gets limited. The way in which you work shifts, it changes. And so the, the true test of resilience, I think, is when you are able to adapt to those changes gracefully without requiring significant new investment and you're able to still meet and fulfill your customer obligations, your operational expectations, that really is. And so what you learn in times of hardship are to sort of live, you know, more Spartan-like. And that Spartanism, if there's such a word as that, that's what allows you to stay resilient, to say, what are the core things that I need in order to stay up and running? And those fundamental areas become the areas of great investment, the areas that you watch over more carefully, the areas that you measure the performance of, the areas that you look for patterns in and trends in to try to predict what's happening, right? So that is something that carries over from experiences of being on the front lines of a, uh, a war or, or from being uh, you know, in the midst of a hurricane trying to recover a data center or an earthquake or any other uh, type of power outage. 
right? These are all the sort of key scenarios that we would be going to look at. And that's one of the things they all have in common. It's really that you don't have the resources or access to the resources that you thought you did. And now you've got to be able to do something slightly differently. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's been great to get your perspective on enterprise resilience, really fascinating stuff. So thank you. Thank you, Natalia. And and thank you, Nick. It's been a great conversation. As I look back at this discussion that we had, I feel even even stronger now that the recommendations that we're making and the guidance that we're giving our customers and sharing our experiences becomes really, really important. I think this is something that we're learning as we're going along. We're learning on the journey. We're uncovering things that we didn't know. We're looking at data in a different way. We're, we're trying to figure out how do we sustain ourselves, not just through this pandemic, but also beyond that. And I think the whatever it is that we're learning, it becomes really important to share. And for our customers and people who are listening to the podcast to share back with us what they've learned, I think that becomes incredibly important because as much as we like to tell people what we're doing, we also want to know what, what people are doing. So learning that, I think, will be a great, great experience for us to have as well. So thank you so much for enabling this conversation. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Welcome back to another episode of Security Unlocked. We are sitting with Andrew Pifford today, senior researcher at Microsoft. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. We're really excited to chat with you today. So I'm just doing a little research on your background and looks like you've had a really varied experience in terms of security domains, consulting for mobile device security. I saw some research on system security and it looks like now you're focused on confidential computing at Microsoft. So let's start there. Can you talk a little bit about what a day in the life of Andrew looks like at Microsoft? Absolutely. I think I have one of the most fascinating roles at Microsoft. On a day-to-day basis, I'm a researcher in the confidential computing group at the Microsoft Research Lab in Cambridge. But I also work very closely with the Microsoft Security Response Center, the MSRC. And so these are the folks who who are dealing with the frontline incidents and responding to reported vulnerabilities at Microsoft. But I work more on the research side of things. So how do we bridge the gap between research and what's really happening on the on the front lines. And so I, I think my position is quite unique. It's it's hard to describe in any other way than that, other than to say I work on research problems that are relevant to Microsoft security. And what are some of those research problems that you're focused on? Oh, so it's actually been a really interesting journey since I joined Microsoft uh, two years ago now. My background, as you mentioned, was actually more in system security. So I'd, I'd previously worked with technologies like trusted execution environments. But since joining Microsoft, I've worked on two really, really interesting projects. The, the first has been around what we call safe systems programming languages. So to give a bit more detail about it, in the Security Response Center, we've looked at the different vulnerabilities that Microsoft has has patched and addressed over the years and seen some really interesting statistics that something like 70% of those vulnerabilities for the, the past decade have been caused by a class of vulnerability called memory corruption. And so the, the question around this is, how do we try and solve the root cause? 
cause of this problem? How do we address uh, memory corruption bugs in a durable way? And so people have been looking uh, both within Microsoft and more broadly at how we could do this by transitioning to a a different programming paradigm, a more secure programming language, perhaps. So if you think of a lot of software being written in C and C++, this is potentially a a cause of, of memory corruption bugs. So we were looking at what can we do about changing to safer programming languages for for system software. So you might have heard about new languages that have emerged like the Rust programming language. Part of this project was investigating how far we can go with languages like Rust and, and what do we need to do to enable the use of Rust at Microsoft. And what was your role with Rust? Is this just a language that you had determined was a safe, viable option? Or were you part of potentially producing that language or evolving it to a place that could be safer? That's an excellent question. So in in fact, it it was a bit of both. First determining, is this a, a suitable language? Trying to define the evaluation criteria of how we would determine that. But then also, once we'd found Rust to be a language that we decided we could potentially run with, there was an element of what do we need to do to bring this up to, let's say, to be usable within Microsoft? And actually, I, I did quite a bit of work on, on this. We realized that uh, some Microsoft security technologies that are available in our Microsoft compilers weren't yet available in the Rust compiler. One in particular is, is called Control Flow Guard. It's a, a Windows security technology. And this wasn't available in Rust. And so the team I, I work with looked at this and said, okay, We'd like to have this implemented, but nobody was available to implement it at the time. So I said, all right, let me do a prototype implementation. And uh, I contributed this to the open source project. And in the end, I ended up following through with that. And so I've, I've been essentially maintaining the, the Microsoft Control Flow Guard implementation for the, the Rust compiler. So really an example of Microsoft contributing to this open source language that, that we hope to be using further. Andrew, could you speak a little bit more to control flow guard and control flow integrity? What is that? I know a little bit about it, but I'd love to, for our audience to sort of like expand upon that idea. Absolutely. So this is actually an an example of a technology that goes back to a collaboration between the MSRC, the the Security Response Center, and, and Microsoft Research. This technology, Control Flow Guard, is really intended to enforce a property that we call Control Flow Integrity. And that simply means that if you think of a program, the control flow of a program jumps through to different functions. And Ideally, what you want in a well-behaved program is that the control always follows a well-defined path. So, for example, you start executing a function at the beginning of the function rather than halfway through. If, for example, you could start executing a function halfway through, this leads to all kinds of possible attacks. And so what Control Flow Guard does is it checks whenever your, your program is going to do a branch, whenever it's going to jump to a different place in the code, it checks that that jump is a valid call target, that you're actually jumping to the correct place. And this is not the attacker trying to compromise your program and launch one of many different types of attacks. And so how do you do that? What's the process by which you do in, ensure that control flow? 
Oh, this is really interesting. So this is a technology that's supported by Windows. At the moment, it's only available on, on Microsoft Windows. And it works in conjunction between both the compiler and the operating system. So the compiler, when you compile your program, gives you a list of the valid call targets. It says, all right, here are the places in the program where you should be allowed to jump to. And then as the program gets loaded, the, the operating system loads this list into a, a highly optimized form so that when the program is running, it can do this check really really quickly to say, is this jump that I'm about to do actually allowed? And so it's this combination of the Windows operating system plus the compiler instrumentation that, that really make this possible. Now, this is quite widely used in Windows. Um, we want, in fact, as much Microsoft software as possible to use this. And so it's really critical that we enable it in any sort of programming language that we want to use. How do you protect that list, though? So now you, isn't that now a target for potential attackers? Absolutely, yep, and and it becomes a bit of a race to, to protect different bit of a bit of a cat and <laughs> cat and mouse game. But at least the nice thing is because the list is in one place, we can protect that area of memory to a much greater degree than than the rest of the program. So, just taking a step back, can you talk a little bit about your path to security? What roles have you had? What brought you to security? What's informing your role today? It's an interesting story of how I ended up working in security. It was when I was applying for PhD programs, I had written a PhD research proposal about a topic I thought was very interesting at the time on mobile cloud computing. And I still think that's a hugely interesting topic. And what happened was I sent this research proposal to an academic at the University of Oxford, where I, I was looking to study, and I didn't hear anything for, for a while. And then a, a few days later, I got an email back from a completely different academic saying, this is a very interesting topic. I have a project that's quite similar, but looking at this from a security perspective, would you be interested in doing a PhD in security on, on this topic. And so this was my very mind-blowing experience for me. I hadn't considered security in that way before, but I, I took a course on security and found that this was something I was, I was really interested in and ended up accepting the, the PhD offer and did a PhD in system security. And that's really how I got into security. And as they say, the rest is history. Is there a particular part of security, particular domain within security that is most near and dear to your heart? Oh, that's a good question. I think, <laughs> I, I think for me, security it, itself is such a broad field that we need to ensure that we have security at, at all levels of the stack, at all places within the chain, in that it's really going to be the weakest link that an attacker will will go for. And so I've actually changed field perhaps three times so far. This is what keeps it interesting. My PhD work was around trusted computing. And uh, then, as I said, I, since joining Microsoft, I've been largely working in both safe systems programming languages and more recently AI and security. And so I think that's what makes security interesting, the, the fact that it's never the same thing two days in a row. I think you hit on the secret phrase for this show. So AI and security, can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing in AI and security within Microsoft? Certainly. So about a year ago, as many people in the industry realized that AI is being very widely used and is having great results in so many different products and services, but that there is a risk that AI algorithms and systems themselves may be attacked. 
for example, I, I know you had some, some guests on your podcast previously, uh, including Ram Shankar Sivakumar, who discussed the adversarial ML threat matrix. And this is primarily the area that I've been working in for the past year, looking at how AI systems can be can be attacked from a security or a privacy perspective in collaboration with researchers from MSR Cambridge. What are you most passionate about? What's next for a couple of these projects? Like with Rust, is there a desire to make that ubiquitous beyond Microsoft? What's the next stage? Absolutely. Lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of interest in this. So um, personally, I'm, I'm not working on the SSPL project myself, or I'm, I'm not working on the Safe Systems Programming Languages project myself any further. But I know that there's a lot of interest within Microsoft. And so hopefully we'll see some exciting things emerging in, in that space. But I think my focus is really going to be more on the both the security of AI. And now we're also exploring different areas where we can use AI for security. This is in collaboration more with the Security Response Center. So looking into different ways that we can automate different processes and use AI for different types of, of analysis. So certainly a lot more to, to come in that space. I wanted to come back to Rust for, for a second there, Andrew. So you talked about how the Rust programming language was specifically designed for, correct me on taxonomy here, memory integrity, is that correct? For memory safety, yep. Memory safety, got it. What's happening on sort of the, the flip side of that coin in terms of instead of having to choose a programming language that has memory safety as sort of a core tenet, what's happening with the operating system to ensure that languages that maybe don't have memory safety sort of front and center can be safer to use and uh, threats or risks to memory integrity are, are sort of mitigated. So what's happening on the operating system side? Is that what Control Flow Guard is designed to do? Or are there other things happening to ensure that memory safety is, is not just the responsibility of the programming language? Oh, it's, that's an excellent question. So Control Flow Guard certainly helps. It helps to mitigate exploits once there's been an, an initial memory safety violation. But I think that there's a lot of interesting work going on both in the product space and also in the research space about how do we minimize the amount of software that, that we have to trust. If you accept that software is going to have bugs, is going to have vulnerabilities, what we'd like to do is we'd like to trust as little software as possible. And so there's a really interesting effort which is now available in, in Azure under the, the heading of confidential computing, which is this idea that you want to run your security-sensitive workloads in a hardware-enforced trusted execution environment. So you actually want to take the operating system completely out of what we call the trusted computing base, so that even if there are vulnerabilities in, in the OS, they don't affect your security-sensitive workloads. So I think that there's this, this great trend towards confidential computing around compartmentalizing and segmenting the software systems that we're going to be running. So removing the operating system from the trusted computing base and, and indeed taking this further, there's already something available in Azure. You can look up Azure Confidential Computing, but there's a lot of research coming in from the, the academic side of things about new technologies and new ways of, of enforcing separation and compartmentalization. And so I think it's part of this full story of, of security that we'll need memory-safe programming languages, we'll need compartmentalization techniques, some of which uh, rely on new hardware features. And we need to put all of this together to really build uh, a secure ecosystem. I only heard of confidential computing recently. 
I'm sure it's not a new concept, but for me as a sort of a productized thing, I only sort of recently stumbled upon it. I did not realize that there was this gap. There was this delta in terms of data being encrypted at rest, data being encrypted in transit, but then while the data itself was being processed or transformed, that that was a, was a gap. Is that the core idea around confidential computing to ensure that at no stage the data is not encrypted? Is, is that sort of what it is? Absolutely. And it's one of the key pieces. So we call that isolated execution in the sense that the data is running in a a trusted environment where only the code within that environment can access that data. So if you think about the hypervisor and the operating system, all of those can be outside of the trusted environment. We don't need to trust those for the correct computation of, of that data. And as soon as that data leaves this trusted environment, for example, if it's written out of the CPU into DRAM, then it gets automatically encrypted. And so we have that really, really strong guarantee that only our code is going to be touching our data. And the second part of this, and this is the really important part, is a a protocol called remote attestation, where this trusted environment can prove to a remote party, for example, the, the customer, exactly what code is going to be running over that data. So you have a a very high degree of assurance of this is exactly the code that's going to be running over my data and no other code will, will have access to it. And the incredibly interesting thing is then what can we build with these trusted execution environments? What can we build with confidential computing? And to bring this back to the the key word of your podcast, we're very much looking at confidential machine learning. How do we run machine learning and AI workloads within these trusted execution environments? And, And that unlocks a whole lot of new potential. Andrew, do you have any advice for people that are maybe still studying or thinking about studying? Uh, I see. So you, your initial degree was in not in computer engineering, was it? No, I I'd actually did electrical engineering and then electrical and computer engineering. And by the time I did a PhD, they put me in the computer science department, even though I was doing <laughs> software engineering. Yeah. So I wonder if folks out there that, that don't have a software or a computer engineering degree, maybe they have a, a different engineering focus or a mathematics focus, any advice on when and how to consider computer engineering or so the computing field? Yeah, absolutely. I think in particular, if we're talking about security, I'd say have a look at security. It's often said that people who come with the best security mindsets haven't necessarily gone through the traditional programs. Of course, it's fantastic if you can do a computer science degree, but if you're coming at this from another area, another another aspect, you bring a unique perspective to the world of cybersecurity. And so I would say, have a look at security, see if it's something that that interests you. you. You might find, like I did, that it's a completely fascinating topic. And then from there, it would just be a question of seeing where your skills and expertise could best fit in to the broad picture of security. We desperately need people working in this field from all different disciplines, bringing a diversity of thought to the field. And so I'd, I'd highly encourage people to have a look at this. And you made a quite a hard turn into security through the PhD suggestion. It, Like you said, it was one course and then you were off. So what do you think from your background prepared you to make that kind of transition? And maybe there's something there that could inform others along the way. I think, yes, it, it's a question of looking at, uh, of understanding the system in as much detail as you possibly can. And then trying to think like like an attacker, 
trying to think about what could go wrong in the system. And as we know, attackers won't respect our assumptions. They will use a system in a different way in which it was designed. And that ability to, to think out of the box, which, which comes from understanding how the system works, and then really just a, a curiosity about security. They call it the security mindset of perhaps being a little bit cautious and cynical to say, well, <laughs> this can go wrong, so it probably will go wrong. But I think that's, that's the best way into it. Must be a strong follower of Murphy's Law. Oh, yes. <laughs> what are you watching? What are you binging? What are you reading? Either of those questions or anything along in that flavor. I'll, I'll have to admit, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. So I've been watching the new Star Trek Discovery series on, on Netflix. That's, that's great fun. And I've recently been reading a, a really interesting book called Atomic Habits about how we can make some small changes and uh, how these can, can help us to build larger habits and, and propagate through. That's fascinating. So that's as in looking at trying to learn from how atoms and atomic models work and seeing if we can apply that to like human behavior? Uh, no, I think it's just oh. a catchy title of the book. <laughs> you, you had me there. Gotcha I was like, neck. wow, that sounds fascinating. Like, nope, nope, just marketing. Marketing for the win. Have you always been Star Trek? Are you, if, if you had to choose Team Star Trek or Team Star Wars or, or another, you, it would be Star Trek? I think so, yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm Team Star Trek, which may lose us a lot of subscribers including Natalia. <laughs> Natalia has her hands over her mouth here. She's, oh my gosh. Favorite Star Trek show or? I, I have to say it, it would have been the first one I watched, Deep Space Nine. <gasps> I love Deep Space Nine. I whispered that. Maybe that <laughs> it's Deep Space Nine's great. Yep. All right, cool. All right, Andrew, you're allowed back on the podcast. That's good. Thanks. You're allowed back, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so before we close, Andrew, is there anything you'd like to plug? I know you have a you have a blog. I know you work on a lot of other sort of projects and groups. Anything you'd like to uh, plug to the listeners? Absolutely, yeah. Um, we are actually hiring. Uh, well, the team I work with in Cambridge is is hiring. So if you're interested in privacy preserving machine learning, please do have a look at the website careers.microsoft.com and submit an application to to join our team. That sounds fascinating. Thank you. And can we follow along on your journey and all the great things you're working at at your website? Absolutely, yeah. And if you follow along the, the Twitter feeds of both Microsoft Research Cambridge and the Microsoft Security Response Center, we'll, we'll make sure to tweet about any of the, the new work that's coming out. That's great. Well, Andrew Pavert, thank you so much for joining us on the Security Unlocked podcast. We'd love to have you come back and talk about some of the projects you're working on in a deep dive section on a future episode. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.